0: podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org, that's b-r-i-t-e-va.org, or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism.
1: Welcome back to Larger for Life, a uh- Podcast here on the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm joined by some of our co hosts, uh, Sean Morris, Derek Bright, and Steven Spinnenweber. Uh, we are missing our beloved Nick Bullock this episode, and uh, we will try not to, to ridicule him too, too bad. He is uh, doing some laborious work there in Stuttgart, Germany. And so we are, uh, maybe, possibly, going to take it easy on him for for missing this episode, but maybe not. You, you just never know. Uh, the spirit like might lead
2: us exactly otherwise. With the word missing.
3: He's not beloved by me. Not after that awful impression of me. I. This is the first. Terrible. So, terrible. yeah, for our listeners, it, this is the first episode we've recorded since I heard what they did to me, uh-huh. and. There are charges being filed against each of these men in their respective presbyteries for uh, slander, and <laughs> I'll never live that down. Uh, that you know imp- how many people have asked me about the condition of my back and how sleek it is. I mean, it is uncomfortable, so I have you men to thank for
0: that. Your back or the people that the number of people asking you about it?
2: Yes, <laughs>
0: that impression uh, tweet was absolutely us at
2: larger for life. If you want to see a picture of Spin's back.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that impression that Nick did was absolutely over the top and preposterous, which was just made it hilarious, because it sounded, I mean, it was just like helium-infused 12-year-old spin, spin and Weber. It was absolutely over the top. It was fantastic. I just got my driver's license, thank you, so I'm a big kid
3: now.
1: <laughs> it was terrible and glorious, all at the same time. Pray McCall. So... <laughs> well,
3: this is, this is a pretty glorious question we've got today, because... We wrapped up the doctrine of God in, what, four episodes, so lightning, like at breakneck glacial speed. That's what we did, (laughs) and so what are we talking about today, Matt?
1: We are uh, on the Trinity, how our God is a Trinitarian God, and so we introduced this uh, last episode, and now we're on question 10. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? The answer, and pay attention to the the careful articulation of the words here, the answer is, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so, uh, with that being read, Sean, do you want to set us up for how we're going to handle this question in this episode?
0: Well, this is the episode where we lose all of our Eastern Orthodox friends and followers. Uh, all, all one of them that might have been listening along if they were just if they were just catechetically curious. If they, if they were Westminster or Presby curious, we're losing them here as as the Western Church has lost the Eastern Church since 1453. Right, because this is. This is the big sundering, if you will, the first sundering, if you will, of Christendom well before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Part of it, at least, is this this classic disagreement that exists between East and West about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father or proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so, you know, if you ever looked up a a Nicene Creed that the Eastern Church uh, affirms versus a Nicene Creed, which the Western Church, both Protestants, uh, and the Church of Rome would affirm. You'll see that there's a difference in language there because uh, I'm, I'm looking at the Nicene Creed right now, the one that the Western Church would affirm, that we Protestants would affirm. Uh, there in that third section, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's that filioque clause, right? And the Son in in Latin filioque and the Son. So that's part of what we're going to be seeing here is. Uh, the equality amongst the members of the Godhead of the Trinity—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—we So we might tease out a little bit of historical implications there, as that's been as that's been uh, dealt with throughout Christian history. But also, as Matt indicated, even in the language of uh, the Catechism question, that's how we're going to structure this episode, roughly and loosely, as we think about uh, the, the the theological teaching that comes to us here in the answer—the notion of begetting and proceeding because you'll notice in the first half of that question or excuse me the first half of the answer it is proper to the father to beget the son and to the son to be begotten of the father so we're thinking about the language of begetting what does it mean to beget what does it mean to be begotten as you think of the father and the son those two persons of the Trinity but then on the the other half of the episode we want to think about proceeding or procession what does it mean that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the father and the son from all eternity so that's there's a rough a rough sketch, a rough outline of where we're going to go in this episode. And I know a lot of us have thought a lot about this issue. We've been forced to think about it in our seminary days, studying on these things. We've been forced to think about it in certainly in in studying up for presbytery exams and ordination exams, different theological papers we've had to write, uh, but it's not a thing that's been forced uh, unhappily. It's something that we revel in. It's something that we rejoice in to think about these things that are true of our triune God. Uh, this is part of who he is. And it's, a, it's a, a wondrous thing to to study, to ponder, and even to behold in some regard. But I know our brother Derek in particular has given some extra attention to these matters, just in some of the the research and writing that he's been doing for his uh, degree programs, as well as uh, other articles that he's been able to uh to, to pen here of late, so we're thankful to be able to lean upon him as he helps us uh, lead the discussion on uh, what this question is getting at. So let me kick it over to Derek and say, where would you like to begin as we uh, wind our way through this wonderful catechism question and the discussion that it lends itself to?
2: Yeah, well, there's um, there's a lot of places we could go. Um, the first thing I would say is that uh, when we come to a tech or a um, a subject like this. I think it's important for everyone listeners, obviously included that when you're speaking to, to realize that when you're speaking about the Trinity and the personal properties, um, we need to recognize a couple of things. One is that in a very real sense, we're standing on Holy ground. We are uh, exhausting really the human language to try to describe the eternal God and Um, Our language does fail us. It's helpful, um, but it's ultimately uh, can never truly describe who God is. Um, And then secondly, I would say we need to know note that when we're speaking about these things, there are landmines everywhere. And if you um, misunderstand or if you go too far in one direction or the other, you're liable to end up in heretical waters. And so this is where I would encourage um, our listeners, not only to depend upon the scriptures, but to go back to our tradition of the creeds and see what they have argued for, see what they have said, because the creeds really have provide a helpful boundary in what can be said and what shouldn't be said. And mm-hmm. so um, I would, I would want to set kind of, set the tone that way and just say that we're you know we, we need to approach this carefully and cautiously um but to start off I would say note that um, this language is not we don't need to think of it as the same as human language so mm-hmm. um, we see that it's proper of a father to be of the father to beget the son and we would say in our own human terms right would go well of course a father begets the son like, um our own you know our fathers begat us we begat our children whatever um but that's not necessarily how we would uh understand god and his begetting of the son because his begetting of the son is an eternal begetting it's an yeah. eternal generation he's the eternally begotten one um and so uh there was never a, a time when the son was not okay and I know later on, perhaps in the next question, we'll talk about classic heresies, but it's interesting to, to note that Arianism, one of the reasons it, uh, it did advance, um, so successfully is because they came up with a little jingle, right? There was a time when the sun was not, and kids would, um, would recite that and it would kind of get into the, their DNA and their worship in their church and, um, and if you just take the language without understanding what it's trying to communicate and say, uh, well, of course, the father begat the son, that means the father was always there and then he produced the son. Um, but that's just not the case here, right? right? We see that God, the son is eternally begotten. That means he was always there. The Trinity did not, was not a conception of the father. The Trinity is who God is. And these language of this language of personal properties is what we have to help describe the relationship between the, and the distinction really between the persons Um, because there are three persons in one, that's one being, right? There's one God in three persons. And so we want to, to use personal properties to distinguish the persons, but we don't want to make it to where one is necessarily greater than the other. One was around when the other wasn't. Um, and so I would, I would just start there.
0: Before we uh, progress further, since uh, let me just, it just occurred to me, I need to correct myself because I'm a church history nerd. I'm sure we've got other church history nerds listening along. I misspoke about a date earlier ago. You ever have those moments where your mouth gets ahead of your brain and your mouth just speaks too quickly and your brain is catching up about five, six, seven seconds behind? So 1453, that was not the great schism. That was the fall of Constantinople. 1054, so a good 400 years earlier, 1054, that was the great schism. Uh, between the Eastern and Western church where there was the the fallen out uh, for a variety of reasons, both. I was I was going to correct you like I was
3: <laughs> as offended as I've ever been in my pastoral career. And well, um, if I was couldn't... Not, you, you couldn't hear me, I was literally like this clenched <laughs> screaming at the sky because you got that date wrong. And um, Derek, I, I just want to say it, it was kind of funny. I can't remember who said it. But they said, you know, people will often sing their heresies before they come to believe them. Mm. And so I know that you were not doing a screed against uh, contemporary Christian music. But I think it is just a reminder like, hey.
1: We're looking you know, at you, Hillsong Elevation Worship. Bethel he music. broke
0: the law for love. He yeah. broke the law for love. No, wait, no, 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 no. He, he kept the law uh, for love. Amen. <laughs> Jesus, he fulfilled Jesus the
3: law. Amen. Yeah, so it, it, it's pretty cool to just see. Um, I think the development of church history and how, I mean, it's unfortunate that these things kind of keep popping up, but it is yeah. cool to see how the ancient creeds and confessions answer these in every generation. Again, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun that goes for heresies, Trinitarian heresies. They're all kind of repackaged. And the answer by God's grace, through his preservation of the church, is the same. We, we can point back to these creeds, which are a summation of the teaching of scripture, and we could say, no, the Son existed eternally alongside the Father, having been begotten by him, and as we'll learn a little bit later, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, Derek, I've done evangelism with Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll say, look, It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So, I mean, clearly, if we want to take the Bible at face value, if we want to believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture, we have to say that Jesus was the firstborn. So how do we interpret those? I I said, Derek, but I'll kick that over to the group. How do we help our listeners anticipate and answer that charge? Like, hey, the son must have been born Mm -hmm. or had a time... Wherein he came into being, because Scripture says he's the firstborn.
0: Right. Well, I would say, and then I'll, I'll defer to Derek because I know he's he's thought and written more on this. But we have to hold Colossians in tandem with John one for starters. They're both God's holy and inerrant and inspired words, so they have to coalesce and coordinate together, and so they cannot be at odds with one another. And so when you turn to John chapter one, right there, it's smacks in the face. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was. With God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's this Word, and then there's this God, and this Word is alongside the, this Word. And John, of course, our readers know we're speaking of Jesus Christ here. But if a if a person came Tabla Rasa to John's Gospel and didn't know what he was getting at, he would soon learn that agenda. But he would realize, okay, there's these two subjects here. There's this Word person, and there's this God person, and whatever John's talking about, this Word and this God are coexistent from. Before time, and this word is alongside God and and with God, he's right there in the beginning with him, and then all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so I just don't know how any reasonable person uh, gets around the co-eternality of the word, namely Jesus Christ, right alongside God the Father, as they're together there at the beginning of John's gospel in that wonderful prologue.
1: Well, they'll, they'll also point, you know, beyond Colossians, they'll also point to Hebrews 1, 5, right? Where... You are my son, the Father speaking. You are my son today. Um, I have begotten you, or this day I have begotten you. And so they, you know, they elevate the creation um, of of the world and of the Son as kind of the climax of redemptive history. And and now the the incarnation and redemption has to take a a back seat or get pushed to the. The, the back burner of the stove because you have the the creation of God, the son at the very beginning. And, and again, they point to this language of begotten or begets. Um, and so, uh, you know, Derek is, is, is this what we're talking about? Or, you know, of course, we we keep saying there's a, there's a co internality that exists between uh, the father, son and spirit, right? Um, but what does this, you know, what does this word beget? I mean, what what are we talking about? Because clearly we're not talking about any sort of creation or subordination of God the Son to God the Father. And so, you know, help our listeners understand what this human language, limited though it be, um, this begetting or this, yeah this begetting, what, what is this all about?
2: Yeah, well, um, if you want to just talk about the word begetting, you know, you could, you could use the word brought forth an eternal bringing forth. Um, But we need to understand that God has revealed himself as father, son and Holy spirit. And that the father, I use the word in another episode, taxes and, taxes really just means order and um it's not order of uh it's not rank okay so the father is first in order he has the beginning of all action um but he is not uh first in rank that's different and so um i, I would say that when we talk about eternal beginning, getting the father is the one who is bringing forth the son, but he does it in an eternal manner, meaning that it's always been that way. And, um, whereas our beginning has a definite starting point. And I love that, um, Sean talked about John one, because in the beginning was the word, the logos and the word was with God. The word was God, mm-hmm. not the word was a God. Yes. Um, but the word was God. And so you see that there um, are at least at that point two divine persons who qualify as God. Then you would go to other texts such as um, you could go uh, to John chapter one verses 14 and 18 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth now here's what's interesting there is it says we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father you know you go to john 17 and jesus says lord i pray that i would you know share in that glory once again that i had with you before the world was who's this one that that shares in the glory of the father? Well, it's the eternally begotten son. And it's interesting because in Isaiah and elsewhere, uh, God tells his covenant people, I am the only God. I will share my glory with no other. Mm -hmm. And so for one to share glory with the father, he must be equal with the father. He must be of the same substance as the father, because if God will not share his glory with anyone else, no one else can compare. And Jesus has the boldness and audacity to pray, Lord, give me that glory that I already had with you in eternity past. Um, That shows an equality there. It shows, um, that he is on the same level, if you will, as the father. And I'm I'm thinking apologetically here, but also verse 18 of John one, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. There's actually a textual variant there. Um, and your new American standard and maybe some others would say, um, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, uh, which I actually think is, uh, I, I prefer that term, uh, the only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the father. Um, and so even there, the text recognizes that um there's an equality of the son with the father the trouble that we run into um and this is not uh only true of when we're talking about eternal generation and eternal spiration, things like that the trouble we run into is anytime we take the well two things let me say two things here because i think it's i think they're both important one way we run into trouble is what I've already said, which is taking our human language and our human understanding of words and, and running their meaning back into the Trinity. Um, Yeah. What we understand about being a father and a son. um, And we say, well, a father is always greater. Thus the father is greater. And then the, you know, and so this actually leads to the second thing is some would say, well, isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He says uh, the Father is greater than I. Well, this is your second your second problem here. You don't want to read the economic missions back into the imminent life of the Trinity. So it is proper of the Son who is eternally begotten to be sent um, to be the mediator of his people. It's proper to him because of his taxes in the Trinity second in order. And also because he is the one who it's proper of him to be eternally generated. So in his mission and sending forth, right, that's, there is, um, a relationship there. However, the problem is we will take that then and not take into account other truths about scripture and say, well, we, we forget Jesus is speaking as the incarnate one Mm -hmm. who is sent from the father. Right. And um, when we get into question 11, we'll talk about how God is equal in his works, all three persons, inseparable operations, those things like that. But for now, I would just say, we forget when Jesus says things like that, he's speaking as the incarnate one, one person with two complete, full natures He's truly God and truly man. And Jesus is speaking as the mediator who has taken on flesh, to redeem his people. And what we don't want to do is then automatically go, um, well, everything that's true of Jesus in his incarnate state is necessarily true of Jesus in the imminent life of the Trinity. Right? So um, let me give you another example. You would say, you could say, well, Jesus um, grew in wisdom uh, and in favor with God and man, Jesus suffered. Jesus had passions. Jesus could change. Uh, and by change, I mean, Jesus actually grew, right? He, he started as an, uh, an embryo and, and, and grew to a full man at, at 33 and, and died then. Um, well, if you read everything of the economic life of the son back into the imminent life of the Trinity, then you can say, well, then it's necessarily true that the eternal son could suffer and die and grow in wisdom and, and could change. And gosh, you don't want to do that. Because now you have a God that's all sorts of crazy and messed up. So I would would want to to throw out those two cautionary um, guardrails there and say, let's not take everything that is said about the economic work and automatically push it back. You know, similar to how Paul will use marriage to teach us a mystery about God. Right. But you don't want to push that too far. Yes. Right. Because. Um, Of a number of reasons, one, but it awesome automatically would make the son subordinate to the father. But the son cannot be subordinate to the father eternally in eternity past if he is the son who is co-equal, co-eternal, shares of the same substance and essence and shares the same glory as the father. He doesn't get a lesser glory. He is equal in glory. Sorry, I just went on a rant. Yeah, no,
0: that's a gr- that's a great oh, point, and it's, it's worth brilliant. stating because there is a correspondence, but it's not a it's not a hard, pure crystal one to one correspondence, and that's where we get ourselves into troubles when we want to insist that there's this earthly one to one correspondence that reflects you know the profound and divine mystery of what's happening in the relations of the Trinity. Spin, I, I think I cut you off. Go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. Well, I cut
3: off Matt, so Matt, you get after it, and then I'll. You know, the first will be last, and the last first. So I'll let you go first, so you can. No, quiet. this is my
2: show.
0: Thank y'all for tuning into the Derek Bright Show here on the Derek Bright Radio Network.
2: The
1: first thing is, I I was going to say is that I wish our listeners could watch Derek do. I mean, just watch Derek do what he just did. I mean, he he leaned back, he grabbed his microphone in hand. He was a boss. As he began to just expound all these, all these great things uh, of of Trinitarian uh, life, but but you know I, I appreciated so much what what Derek you know began to hit on um, this this idea of of the economic uh, mm-hmm. Trinity because that that is so key in our understanding of the mission of God father, son, and spirit, um, redemptive history, our salvation in and of itself, and even the way that the Bible speaks of our, our Trinitarian God, right? I mean, this is one of the questions that Voss has in his commentaries as well, But, but, you know, one of the things that we never see within the scriptures is the order, father, son, and Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost being reversed. It's always the Bible speaking of the Father sending and operating through the Son and the Holy Spirit, also the Bible speaking of the Son and the Father sending and working through the Holy Spirit, and so you know I understand that our English language is is very limited mm-hmm. in our explanations of what's happening within the the Trinitarian God, uh, and yet our Bible gives us great great ways to say what is eternally true, right? Yes. Uh, that that the father does beget the Son and the son is begotten to the Father and the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the son from all eternity. So we have the internality of of the Trinitarian uh, God and yet at the same time as Derek was talking about, this economic, uh, language, you know, Philippians two, uh, mm-hmm. where where Paul's writing of the the humility and and servanthood of Christ. Have this in mind, starting in verse five, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of. Men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is speaking of the economic mission of the son, Um, not saying that he was created, not saying that he was not divine in his incarnation, um, but we have the God man here, truly God, truly man man uh, existing, um, as he has from all eternity. And yet at the same time in the form of a servant, uh, it's a, it's a grand mystery of the, of the Christian faith.
3: Yeah. And I love that you went to Philippians too, because though he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So this is speaking to the Trinity ad intra, how the Son is equal in power, glory, and eternality with the Father. And yet, as you said, in the mission, in redemption, uh, the Son in the incarnation right, is taking on this form of, the ser- of a servant and, in according to his human nature, dying upon the cross, obeying for man. So it's, it's pretty cool to see those two things side by side. And then a couple of things, just as we were talking, Derek, I appreciated when you were talking about how, look, we've got language, which by its very nature is limited, mm-hmm. and we cannot expect that finite, limited, creaturely language can fully circumscribe and express the infinite and eternal God. And so we call this analogical language. Uh, it is isn't an analogy. It is not an exact correlation. It is not God is a father to the Son in the same way that earthly fathers are fathers to their sons. Uh, We cannot adequately, or I'll say fully, describe who God is, and yet we can know Him truly. For the same reason, and we'll get to this a little bit later anthropomorphisms, we know that God does not have a right hand. God is spirit, and He doesn't have a body like man. We know that God doesn't have passions in the same way that you and I do, right? We believe in an impassable God. And so that language of Anthropopathisms, man emotionalisms are the best way that we can describe God. Now, so I, I thought you guys did a great job on that part of the discussion. Now we come a little bit later in this question here, question 10, on the Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father and from the Son from all eternity. Now, Sean, you're a church history wonk. Tell me, does did the Filioque clause just really land for everybody they were like man give me some of that filioque because this is <laughs> you know at the heart of a of a controversy in the early church can can you walk our listeners through that what filio- filioque even means and the differing perspectives on that
0: yeah well i'm i'm not an i'm not a patristic scholar uh, i'm a novice if anything but i'll i'll just say this yeah that little latin word filioque which means and the son Divided, almost divided, an um, basic an empire, and and divided the 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 church as it was in the Christendom, at least as it was in that in that great schism of ten fifty four. The long and the short of it is that the Orthodox, capital O Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, think Greek Orthodox, and things like that. They are not a fan of that language of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. They want to they want to leave off the and the Son clause and just have it simply state he's proceeding, he proceeds eternally from the Father. The Western Church, which we understand now would have been, you know, Roman Catholic as well as Protestants and others, uh, they do want that language, the filioque clause, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So this all gets, you know, comes to a head in the formulation um, of the Nicene Creed, um, as I as I read earlier, there, that third section there, where it's speaking about the, the Holy Ghost, the Creed says, "And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord." So we're affirming Him as divine, no question there. The Lord and Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father, and then that's where that's where the Eastern Church wanted to stop, and then move on to the next sentence, the next clause, and the Western Church says, "No, no, who proceeds from the Father and." The sun, and there was simply no accord. There was no consensus, no agreement uh, that could come. And so you had the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicating and pronouncing, you know, curses upon the Pope of Rome. You had the Pope of Rome pronouncing curses and excommunicating the Patriarch of Constantinople back and forth. And so we're all just uh, fallen out uh, one with another, and that the first great sort of sundering of Christendom, if you will, in 1054. Fast forward to another five hundred years, and you got the Protestant Reformation, probably the next great schism, if you will, uh, historically speaking. But so there's there's not a small amount of theological controversy. There's not a small amount of political controversy that's caught up in this filioque clause. Don't let anyone tell you that it was purely a theological. Uh, disagreement that was being had certainly theology was driving it, but there was a lot of political intrigue and money and power and who got influence in the empire, and there were vested interests on both sides of either keeping that clause in or keeping that clause out, uh, so so that certain power brokers could maintain that control in the life of the empire. So some it's a lot of interesting stuff.
3: So scripturally and doctrinally, why would we, as part of the Western Church and the Western tradition, why would we affirm? that the son and the father together, that it is um, from them that the spirit proceeds. What is, where do we get that in the Bible? I don't want to say what is gained. I mean, obviously sure. we need to know God as he is and, and that's important, but uh, why would we insist that, hey, it's not enough to say that the spirit proceeds from the father, but we also want to say that the spirit very clearly proceeds from the son uh, I'm I'm looking at the proof texts here. I know our listeners may not have a larger catechism in front of them, but you think it might be worth walking through uh, the procession of the Spirit from Father and Son? I think that's R for those of you that do have a copy. John yeah. 15, 26, but when the Comforter, that is the Spirit, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, so this is Christ speaking, mm-hmm. even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Well, it sounds like Jesus says, "Hey, He proceeds from the Father."
0: It it does. And let me share a short anecdote, and i and i I'm going to take us to Romans eight real quickly, and then I'll kick it back to the other guys because I I monologue there for a second. But way back when I was in high school, I was guest preaching for my little PCUSA church and several other churches, and it was I was maybe it was college. Anyway, I was I was invited by my pastor to to do some guest preaching at this joint service, and I decided to preach from Romans 8. And after, and I preached on the passage, I I think reasonably well, but I remember after the fact, there was this lady that came up to me, and she had a quibble with how we uh, approached the text and how we studied it. And after almost three hours of absolutely fruitless conversation, I, I came to realize that this lady had been imbibing some sort of old school Greek Gnostic dualism, because she was convinced that there were two Holy Spirits. There was the Father, the Son, and then there was, in her mind, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. So not a Trinity, but a quadrinity, because there's two Holy Spirits in her minds, because that's what it says in the Bible in that passage in Romans 8 that we were just reading. And I just, I, I don't I don't know what was happening there. I don't know her backstory, but there was just something was not clicking. She was not, she was not tracking with <laughs> the reasonable argumentation, because if you go to Romans 8 and you see what Paul's doing there, it's Romans 8, verse 9. For you, however, Paul says are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, capital S, so Holy Spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So there in the first half of verse nine, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says he's the spirit of God. So there's that possessive of, one might say uh, uh, the Holy Spirit processing from the Father. He goes on in the latter half of verse nine, same verse. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you see what Paul's doing just very naturally without even even bothering to explain his terms. He's slipping in and out of this language and this terminology of spirit of God and spirit of Christ because he views them as synonymous. Spirit of God, namely the Father, so the spirit who is of the Father Uh, He dwells in you and anyone who does not have this spirit of Christ, same person, by the way, is what Paul's saying, you know, reading between the lines in in, in back, same person, spirit of God, spirit of Christ slips in and out naturally because they are synonymous, spirit of God, spirit of Christ. If you don't have them, you don't belong to him. So Paul in Romans 8 and verse 9 there very naturally assumes without even bothering to explain himself that the Holy Spirit Uh, is of God the Father and of God the Son in that regard. And so that's certainly one proof text that's worth exploring in conjunction with all these wonderful proof texts that we see in John's gospel, where he goes uh, above and beyond to help us better understand the eternal procession of the Spirit from both Father and Son. The scholar has unmuted his mic, so I am going
1: to back away and let Derek talk.
2: What? There's a scholar on this, on this podcast
1: Scholar and published, peer-reviewed, published.
2: Gentleman and and scholar. Gentleman
1: and scholar.
3: Derek is the the scholar in residence of the podcast. We just made up a title for him.
2: Uh, I'm never coming on this again. Um, (laughs) No, Well, I I was just going to say that... um, I'm trying not to lean back here. Um, I was just going to say that... uh, that text in john 15 i think goes back to something i said earlier that it's appropriate to an extent i want to be careful there it's appropriate to an extent to see the missions as saying something true about the imminent uh life of god in the sense that what i said earlier was it was appropriate for the son in his uh because of it he's the sent one he's the one who's eternally begat he, it's proper of him to, um, uh, to be begotten, and uh, he is second in the taxes. That it's appropriate for him to be the the sent one um, in the economic missions. Right, that um, the the work of the incarnation and thing everything terminates upon him, upon his person. However, uh, I would uh, say that that's also true of this text in john fifteen twenty six because we know that the spirit comes economically speaking right uh at at pentecost now I, I, of course i'd argue that the holy spirit is i uh, was already here and go back to genesis 1 for that um but it, uh he the holy spirit is the one who is sent by the father and the son to work in the redemption of the people in an economic way however Again, notice that um, that is, again, something that is true. It it, it is uh, better said this way, that it is proper of the spirit to be sent in this way, economically speaking, because he is the one who proceeds from both the father and the son. And so it is it is proper and fitting of his person in order in the taxes to be sent in this way. So again, I I don't want to push it too far because again, I think we're, we're on holy ground and, and there's a a level of mystery here, but I think the missions do in a sense reveal something true about the processions. I I wouldn't, I would not affirm Ronner's rule that says the economic is the imminent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We don't want to do that. Um. No. Um, but we do want to say that there is something that the economic missions reveal about the processions.
1: That was exactly what I was going to say, Derek. I, I mean, I that. shouldn't even. I just put yeah. the credit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but I do have a question, and I mean, anybody can answer. Um. But, but I mean, if you look back at at you know fifteen twenty six or even you know fourteen, fifteen and sixteen it is not just it's not just simply the father working um, but there is an activity a divinic activity that the son is that the son is executing you know he is having uh, unity communion fellowship with the father in 14 15 and 16 where he asks and, on our behalf and the father sends. and then in 26 he sins, the gift of the Father. And so would it Would it simply be fair that to simply say that that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son because the activity of the Son that the Son is describing here in this Upper Room Discourse? I mean, is that not a, a fair, kind of very simple statement that there's activity by both the Father and the Son in the proceeding of the Holy Spirit?
2: Well, I'll jump in. Um Yeah. I mean, I I think I would just say as a general rule that every work that is worked by God is worked by all three persons, the entire Mm -hmm. Godhead. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what the work is. All three persons are active. And so, yes, in the sense that here, the spirit who is being sent the son is active in the sending along with the father. Um, and so, yes, I think is the answer to your question. If I understood it correctly, uh, that, um, there is an activity from the son here because, um, the works of God are all done by the entire Trinity in separable operations.
0: Thank you. That was the term I was trying to think of. I was about to ask you. I said, "There's a technical term, and my, it's escaping my mind." But oh, that we need to just keep emphasizing this in our day because there is so many, so much Trinitarian misunderstanding of all three persons of the Godhead working in tandem for inseparable operations.
2: That's right. Yeah, inseparable operations. There's been a lot of good recovery work done on that, but it's actually found all through the literature uh, yeah. from the from the Patristics, uh, yes. especially through the Reformation. It's it's actually assumed in a lot of uh, literature and yes. um, that all the works of God are one, but it's appropriate that uh, certain works terminate upon a person, right? So all three persons are involved in the incarnation, but it's appropriate that the incarnation itself terminates upon the second person. And um, when we say that all three persons are active and, and working the same thing, as William Perkins would say uh, they all work the same thing um, and love and glorify one another. Read William Perkins, by the way. Um, but <laughs> if you, um, but what we're essentially at the bare minimum saying is that um, because God is one, he's one being with one power. One, um, he, it, it's the same agency, the same power, um, the same God who works all things. Um so, anyways, I, I don't want to get off on a, a rant about that, but the answer to the question is yes. Uh,
0: one thing I just wanted to note, and it it's it's just sort of a generic point as we're as we're looking towards something of a conclusion. But you know, folks might wonder, is this just a bunch of nerdy theological academic eggheads dancing around some you know, obscure arcane point of theology? Uh, you know, and, and I think the short answer to that is no. That this is this is meant for Christians to know and to love. We're not going to wrap our minds around entirely the profound mystery of the Trinity, but in as much as the Catechism sets forth this doctrine here for us, it's meant for us to know and to and to understand to some degree. This isn't just, you know, the, the properties uh, and the and the the actions and the attributes of the various members of of the Godhead. It, it isn't just some article buried away in you know in Bovink or turgen or something like that. It's right here in the Catechism. Now, people might say, well, the larger Catechism, that's you know that was meant for for ministers back in the day to get their heads around. Of course, ministers need to know that. Yeah, well, it's it's touched on in the shorter Catechism too, and which was originally intended for children. Uh, question six in the shorter Catechism: How many persons are there in the Godhead? Three in the Godhead: Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, I mean, this this base level understanding of the properties of God and and the and, and, and the, the inseparable operations of the three members of the three persons of the Godhead, this is for Christians to know. This is, helps us understand our God better, who he is as he's revealed himself, helps us to know him more rightly, helps us to worship him better because our worship must be informed by knowing God better and rightly. So uh, for any folks who might be listening and think, eh, this is just some sort of angels dancing on a, the, the head of a pin kind of thing, I, I would gently say, no, it's not. It's meant for you to know to love, to embrace, maybe not fully comprehend or understand what moral mind can, but it's put here by the Westminster divines in this catechism because it's meant to be doctrine uh, that ought to be accessible to us to some degree so that it'll inform and fuel our Christian living. We are eggheads,
3: but there is much good in studying the Godhead. So take that. Uh, we we are in but, uh, fact
0: eggheads. That'll tweet. Yeah.
3: There we go. But yeah, I, I think to Sean's point, God revealed these things for us to know them, and so it is good, it is right for us to study the doctrine of the Trinity. If you cannot tell, it is highly devotional, highly practical. It's a good thing, and so we'd uh, commend it to you to read more broadly. You can read a bunch of the uh, obscure Dutch folk, you know, that Derek is reading in the original Dutch and Latin, and then you know. The King's English, it's great. I uh, heard Derek but, was reading a in the original Hebrew. Did y'all hear about that? I I heard this, and I've heard he's also working on a translation into Pig Latin, which is going to be riveting. Will y'all do my funeral? <laughs> like right you now? You better for, believe it. Yeah, like right I just now, need y'all to do my because, us, uh, It's uh, It's going to be amazing. the most, it will be all about you and yet not about you at all. <laughs> Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> so before you die, before your funeral, do you want to close this out here, Derek?
2: Yeah. It, um, I know we've went a while. I just want to say a couple more things um, at, before, as we close. And it's to Sean's point. Sean brought up a great point. Sean Sean brought up a, a, great, a great point that uh, this is not some esoteric uh, discussion that actually has bearing upon the Christian life. Let me give you two examples. One would be how you understand properly um, or whether or not you understand them properly. The um, three persons uh, in one being, how you understand the personal properties of each person so on and so forth will necessarily cause you to read scripture differently. I would, I would argue biblically. Okay. But it, you'll start to see things that you did not see before. One example of that would be Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 speaks of wisdom being brought forth from the foundations, from eternity, from everlasting to everlasting is actually what the writer says. Um, and that is a classic text for eternal generation, Proverbs 8. But if, unless you think about or know about eternal generation and apply it, um, and we should go back and read the Old Testament as Trinitarians, right? We don't need to read the Old Testament as Jews. We need to read the Old Testament with Trinitarian lenses. But you go back to Proverbs 8 and you'll see a classic text on eternal generation and it'll make you want to worship God. Secondly would be this. It'll necessarily affect how you pray and how you understand the Lord's Prayer. So, let me give you just a quote. William Perkins in his exposition on the Apostles Creed is talking about the Lord's. Um, well, he, he he brings up the Lord's Prayer. Um, um, actually, it's not as it's not his um, exposition of the of the Creed, although that's great. Volume five, but in volume one, RHB works Sermon on the Mount. Um, he says, though the Father alone be named here, talking about the Lord's Prayer, yet the other two persons are not hereby excluded. The Father indeed is most usually named because he is the first in order, but yet with him always is implied the Son and the Holy Ghost. For as all the three persons subsist in the one and same divine nature or Godhead and are not severed in will and counsel or in outward actions, as creation, preservation and redemption, save only that they are distinguished in the manner of working. So likewise, must they be all conceived in our minds together when we pray and none severed out, though they be not named. And then he goes on and he says um, to conceive aright the order of the persons of the Trinity subsisting in the unity of essence. We may safely name in our prayers which person we will. So that with all we include uh, the rest in our mind and may also, if we name all, place them in such an order as best fits our present occasion as the apostle does in his benediction. Um, he, he, he'll he say elsewhere that um, the father is first in order, but he's a first among, um, you know, three equals, if you will. I, I don't want to push the audience too far, but um, so it necessarily, that's what uh, that is.
3: Primus inter pares. Is that what they
2: call yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it necessarily affects how we read scripture and how we pray, because if we are constantly praying only to the father, we might think that the father is the only one who actually hears prayers. Right. But no, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we can pray to all three persons and and pray according to their. Uh, what may seem appropriate for their working, their manner of working. So anyways, I know that was a rant. I know we need to land the plane and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you benefited and I hope that you'll go and and study these things for yourself. Be good Bereans and study the scriptures so that you would worship and glorify God even more. And uh, thank you for joining us until next time for on behalf of the crew.
0: Cheers. Have a great day. Have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, You can follow us at Facebook.com slash Larger for Life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.